Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi and welcome to Two Pints of Maggots and a Packet of Hooks, the fishing podcast. It's series two and for the last several weeks we've had a little rest, we've regained our thoughts and we've come back with a vengeance. Um, It's been a tricky old spring, I have to say, since the last time we did a podcast. Um, The weather's been crazy, we had a very, very dry April and then a really, really wet May and it's affected the fishing in general. We're starting to see weights on the match fishing scene uh, pick up now, which is good and positive. Uh, We're getting lots of full bags of fish uh, and on the specimen scene one or two of the better fish are starting to show as well but of course the fish they don't know what's going on low pressure high pressure uh, the odd frost overnight as well so it's been a little bit tricky um, on the fishing front but the good news is in terms of the podcasting front we have got an action-packed lineup once again what i would say though is we're going to do things slightly different for series two in the respect that um during series one i tried to stick to a timeline of releasing a new episode every fortnight or so and um, because everybody's back out now fishing everybody's busy again restrictions are being lifted and there's a hint of summer in the air as well it's that getting the guests together and to do an episode every fortnight is really, really tricky. Everybody's got lots on. Of course, we've got summer holidays kicking in as well. It makes it even more difficult. So we're going to do these episodes on an ad hoc basis. We could have uh, two weeks between episodes. We could have two months. Who knows? It all depends on our special guests. And of course, I'm up against big competition. Uh, the Guru podcast has been getting non-Guru sponsored anglers on there as well. So there's a lot of uh, interest, uh, many, many thousands of listens that those guys are getting. And of course, I can't compete with that. There's just little old me and my microphone and my questions. But the good news is on episode one of series two we've brought back the fantastic Keith Arthur for the big chat in the big chair and what we'll do is we'll focus away from the past present and future that we covered in episode two and talk a little bit more about anecdotes around fishing some uh, classic matches that he's fished and classic characters and focus on uh, that way a little bit more Keith, as it stands now, Keith's show, uh, episode one of series one, is still the most listened to podcast that um, we've put together. So it makes sense to bring him back and kick off the new series. He was so popular that I think it's a a good way to start uh, in our new series two. So let's begin with the press pack. (laughs) 
Okay, so here we are with the press pack, a chance to look through the weekly and monthly media for anything that's caught my eye or been interesting. Uh, and on this episode, we're going to concentrate more on the Bauer Media publication. So that's Angling Times in Preview Course Fishing, because uh, there's lots and lots to catch up on since we last did a podcast. Um, just focusing though on, on the most recent um, content, a couple of things that caught my eye in terms of fish catches. Uh, the first one, and as everybody knows that's been listening to these podcasts, is tench by far is my number one fish, my favourite species by far. So this chap called Max Palmer um, had a 111 pound haul of tench in just four and a half hours uh, fishing his southern club water. So that stood out like a sore thumb. And I'll just read you what it says here, that the Devon angler targeted uh, the island pond on the Racker Hayes complex near Newton Abbott. He landed 25 fish, which all fell to casters, presented six metres from the bank. He says he was a very happy man. I'm amazed that such a small water produced such a great haul. Kept things simple, targeting seven foot of water a few sections out and simply loose feeding casters, fishing double caster on a size 16. And it was pretty much um, a bite every drop in. So brilliant. And it's a picture there, two sort of wastelings full of tench. Just a great, great sight. I can't think uh, the last time I had uh, anything anywhere near that sort of catch, probably a dozen or so a couple of years ago. But now, brilliant. So well done to Max just there. Other fish catches that caught my eye. There was one in the recent Angling Times that, you know, blew my mind, really. It was from a guy called Joe Miller. And he'd gone to target a local uh, gravel pit in Kent. It's, it's an unnamed venue. I'm not surprised when you look at this haul that he's had. Now, he's fished specimen tactics, if you like. Uh, he's spotted uh, some bait in and he's fished overnight. Uh, but not only has it produced three personal best weights, but also just a phenomenal amount of fish. He's had sort of a dozen or so eels. He's had over 20 tench. He's had numerous carp. But they were all sort of stood out with the personal best fish so first of all his personal best tench went eight pound 13 ounce personal best carp he's got a mirror there at 35 pound eight and a pb eel at seven pound one ounce which is an absolute right old snake if you see the pictures in uh, it's in this week's angling times and the bait that he fished for all these maggot and it just goes to show how important maggot is still as a as a bait for match fishing. Pleasure anglers, of course, it can catch anything. And, and in this instance, for a specimen angler targeting specifically big fish, he's put in a load of deads and uh, some lives as well and just fished a bunch of maggots over the top throughout the day and night and had this wonderful haul um, of fish. So good on Joe. Uh, fair play to him. Brilliant net of fish. Next thing that caught my eye is uh, an article in last week's Angling Times, which said the changing face of commercials. And what this article essentially, I found it really interesting because it's the way that some of these fishery owners have, have decided to change tack and, and move down a different route. As, as fish have grown bigger in their commercials, they're actually moving away from matches or reducing matches um, to, to attract a different type of angler. So the first one that was uh, quoted in there was viaduct fisheries down in the southwest. And what they've done is now moved away from uh, from lots of matches and, and competitions, um, no qualifiers on there anymore. And they've moved towards a more pleasure angler and, and a holiday theme. So there's lodges on there now as well. Um, you know, they're thinking about bars, you know, 
bigger tackle shops, etc., etc. And the idea is that they just don't want the hassle of running matches anymore. Um, fish welfare in some respects as well. And, and I just thought that's quite interesting. And I know that some of the fish run really big in viaduct and they're actually making a conscious effort now to discourage match fishing. They're just using one water for matches and the rest for pleasure fishing. Um, you know, the owner basically says that at his age now, he doesn't need the hassle and it's time to, to have a more laid back approach. So that was interesting. Uh, similarly with Gold Valley. So I've fished Gold Valley a few times. I've never been to Viaducts, but Gold Valley, um, I always thought a, a really, really pretty venue. Um, the Syndicate Lake at the back, even the, the funky little bat pool, middle lake, the gold one, which is overlooked by the by the lodge there. Lovely willow trees, very established. And the challenge that I think John Raisin's saying in this article is that the fish are just getting too big. You know, there's numerous carp now that are pushing 20 pound, Um They've cancelled all club matches because they don't want club anglers weighing in the fish with perhaps putting them at risk, you know, dragging them up the bank and, and whatnot. And, and it's a difficult one. So they've gone from five matches a week, all club matches cancelled down to just uh, opens two a week, one in midweek and one on a Saturday. And, and what he's seen is that attendances are up. So rather than having little itty bitty matches through the week, which, you know, probably a bit of a hassle running, it's better to have two stellar opens midweek and weekend and and uh, they're regulated more in terms of the weighing in so that's gold valley's perspective on the flip side from from my old stomping ground in terms of partridge so barbara's put a, a few words in there with regards to they've missed matches it's they they know how difficult it, it is is to run them you know they have a number of matches every week and they are very very well attended with you know averages 60 70 anglers plus most days but she wants to try and find a balance and have sort of 50 percent of the complex open for pleasure fishing 50 percent for the matches and and that works well where the coves in general the colby snake lakes tend to be for matches only anyway i noticed that she has um released a couple of the colbys for pleasure fishing through lockdown um but yeah it's, uh, despite them being really tough they missed the banter you know there's a there's a lot more comp- very competitive there as well um so yeah that's slightly on the flip side she gets where the other guys are coming from but for them you know and especially for the uh, revenue matches are very very important for for those types of waters so yeah the changing face of commercials i thought was quite good okay moving on to the next article which is arthur's archive of course keith arthur our special guest on this episode um creating part two i guess of our big chat following on from the one we did in series one and and in this one it's really interesting because it ties things up quite nicely in series one, episode one and two with Keith and Tom, we spoke about Daiwa, the relationship that they both had with them. So, of course, Tom was a consultant. Keith was a, a rep. Um, but this uh, this article that Keith writes, it says the headline is Tommy Picker in Science for Daiwa in 1989. And they speak about the range of rods that we discussed on this podcast, the connoisseur range, which they both believe, you know, you could put new eyes on them, new rings, and and they'd still sell because they were so iconic. Uh, but what Keith does do, his name checks, makes it even more interesting for me, is that he name checks a Japanese chap who was a master rod engineer, really, and his name is uh, Nobuo Nodera. Um, and just to quote what he puts here, it says, uh, it wasn't all Tom's work creating these great ranges of rods. He was blessed with having the opportunity to work in with the best rod engineer ever. 
Uh, also, Roy Marlow was a professional consultant, but not only for rods, and was able to translate Tom's ideas and thoughts into a technical language that Nobuo could understand. I still have two TP rods in my bag. They're my go-to tools, which is a 13-foot Connoisseur Waggler and a Connoisseur Z11 13-foot feeder rod. And we spoke about that. It's amazing. We discussed it on episode one and two with both Tom and Keith. And to see it in print, talking about um, that range and and the guy that was the engineer behind him is really, really fascinating for me. Um, Another article which caught my mind is I've discussed on these podcasts. I'm, I'm a lover of bait. You know, ever since I was a small boy, mixing up ground baits, knocking things together to try and, you know, attract and hold fish was a a really interesting thing for me as a kid. I spent hours in the supermarket buying uh, dyes, different bran flake, you know, getting some hemp seed from a local pet shop, cooking it up and crushing it down and, you know, brown crumb, crushing up biscuits in a blender, all sorts of stuff I did as a kid. And what fascinated me was um, Dr. Paul Garner does a regular column in Angling Times, uh, the bait clinic it's called. And then this one stood out straight, how to create the perfect ground bait mix. So I thought, aye, aye, let's have a read of this and, and see if it's interesting. And it really is. And one of the things when it comes to ground bait um, over the years, and, and, and I always use, if a venue allows it, I will use ground bait without doubt. Um, in any in every single instance without a question i think it, it does give an edge uh, but one of the things i think is ignored by a lot of people is the color choice and dr paul garner talks about this in fact his article starts off with color choice black brown red green and white and he gives an overview of each one and what in each instance now i did a couple of posts not long ago um concentrating on a color chart uh, when you read and delve in a little bit more about how colors act and work under the surface and and it's a question that i you know i discussed with rob hughes on uh, episode three um in series one around what can you see underwater what do we believe fish can and can't see and, and that's where these colors come in and, and i come across uh, what's called the color complementary chart and it talks about what colours complement each other from a primary perspective and, and how it may look under the water. So, for example, um, if a water was very, very green coloured, so there's a lot of algae in there, perhaps a fisher had put some dye in or something like that, then red is the complementary colour or the primary colour that complements green, should I say. So a red ground bait perhaps could work really, really well. If, for example, the water had a sort of a darker green bordering on a blue i know some fisheries are a, a little bit strange then something like an an orangey brown would work quite well so he talks very similar in this you know black being ideal for laying down a bed in clear water which you know we all tend to gravitate towards a black bait in winter time when the water's clear it makes sense fish don't want to go over a light colored bottom where there's predators specifically as well um Red, very popular for bream, tench. You know, you can't go tench fishing without fishing with a red bait and certainly with worms as well. Uh, green, very visible underwater. It appears quite bright, brilliant for a method feeder to draw fish in. White, he uses um, for spotting, making a cloud. Um, again, a little bit in winter. And then he goes on to talk about additives such as hemp, sugar, krill and salt. So krill, crustacean extracts combine perfectly with pellet-based ground baits. All coarse fish love the taste of this small shrimp-like creature. It can be particularly effective for tension crucians. Uh, 10% of krill, 
to uh, your ground bait is the perfect mix. So lots and lots of little tips and tricks in there with regards to creating a perfect ground bait mix. But I guess from my perspective, um, what I pulled out of it and, and what, you know, hopefully you guys can get out of it as well is think about the color chart. Think about what primary colors are complemented by others uh, when it comes to dictating your mix for the day. And, and I know it's a little bit, uh, bit of a strange one because you think, oh, I'm fishing X venue this weekend. Um, you know, I always use the same mix or we know that this mix works well and that's absolutely fine. But actually, what if the color of the waters has changed significantly? Perhaps a different color ground bait could work well. So you don't have to be taking 10 bags to every session that you go on, but it's just worth considering. Okay, moving on to improve your course fishing magazines, the latest edition uh, for June it is edition 377. Uh, and one of the articles that stood out the most is all sorts in it, as always, which is great. But the one that stood out the most was one with uh, Dead Ship's monthly article that he does. But this one resonates because it's preventing line bites and foul hooking. We're now at the time when the fish are beginning to really sort of have a chew. They're starting to spawn a little bit now as well. So once that's over and done with, they look to, to sort of build up strength once again. And, and we're looking at margin fishing, etc. It's the time when I start thinking about fishing paste, things like that. But it's always remember, we all get giddy. You know, you start lashing in big cups of ground bait or loose feed down the edge, thinking that the fish are going to you know, start getting the tails up straight away and it's not the case these fish are now especially on commercials are becoming very very wary and um, you'll get line bites to death and you'll start foul looking fish and one or two fish that shoot off out of your margin or out of your main line of attack you can spoil the swim so it's worth reminding ourselves some of these tips and the way that i like improve your course fishing does it is we all think match anglers we all think we know it but it's absolutely not the case so they break it down into um two sets of five steps so step one try shallower if you're fishing tight to an island and suddenly start foul looking fish after a run of hooking them properly there's every chance the shoulders come off the deck fish will be brushing against your rig and you'll be lifting into them when you strike so try shallower thinks it sounds simple enough but how many of us actually do it instead we often throw the rig up the bank and think uh, they're not having it properly number two find the winning depth if you're fishing the margins, it's important to find a depth where the fish will just about settle. That means that they'll come in and feed, but still have a little bit of caution and not charge around trying to compete. 18 inches, definitely the best. Okay. Number three, bulk it. Now we know this one. Anchoring your hook bait to the bottom will make it harder for the fish to waft it off the deck. Bulk your shot and place it on top of the top of the hook length, not much less chance your hook bait will be stirred up, uh, landing into a fish's tail or fin. Um, Number five, fish off your feed. You've often got to give plenty of bait to get these fish into the margins, but once they arrive, large carpets can create issues. The shore will have lots to see, dart around and cause chaos. If you fish in the middle of that pile, line bites are inevitable. Instead, place your rig two to three feet away from the main bed of bait. You'll find you'll still get bites picking off those fish that are on the periphery and slightly cagey. Good point. You know, we talk about setting a trap, um, which is another way of doing it. Rather than filling in big pots, just use your toss pot, um, you know, fish pinpoint over that toss pot. So there's only one mouthful for the fish to come and grab and your hook bait will be set on it. But if we have got Gideon started putting in big pots, this could be the way forward as well. Fish off of it and pick off the fish on the edge of the shoal. He then moves into his next set of five points in terms of the bait. 
So number one, make it stand out. Something like a piece of worm or a cube of meat over a bed of smaller pellets. Um, paste. Paste has become a forgotten art on commercials. But if you're uh, looking to prevent foul hooking, fish paste. I do it all the time uh, in summer. You know, more often than not, I'll fish paste down the edge rather than anything individual. Because I know... Um, Every time you strike miss a bite, you feed in your peg. But similar, the bites tend to be way, way more positive. It's standing out. It's a nice big um, target for the fish to hold them in on. And they just suck it up without even thinking. Whereas some of those more traditional bunches of maggots or a hard pellet or, you know, um, a soft pellet can be a little bit obvious. At number three, try a smaller hook bait. Uh, if fish are suspicious around a certain type of bait, they'll be erratic and lead to line bites. If you're using a six mil bandy pellet, try a four, etc. Number four, rely on heavy baits. Can't love baits such as maggots and micro pellets, but they are lightweight and can waft off the bottom. Switch into hemp, corn, bigger pellets such as eight mils. Uh, they'll be heavy and stay on the deck. Good point. I've never fed eight mils down the edge. Might be worth a try. Never thought about it. And last but not least, number five, make your ground bait heavy. And I think we're all onto this and, and it's the way forward. But ground baits, full of attraction, great for down the edge. But like micros and maggots, can be lifted off the bottom. So make it heavy and sticky. Once it's been whipped together and riddled, you can add a big pole cup of water and make it a little stiffy and heavier again. So, yeah, it's like almost putting it down a, a, a ground bait pate, if you like, where it's going to go bump straight on the bottom and then break down slowly rather than putting it in light and loose. So, yeah, margin fishing, it's that time of the year. And just some nice tips there from, from Deadship, just to remind us of approaching them because we all, we've all we been waiting for this, haven't we, for months and months with all the rubbish weather. As soon as we start seeing tails now down the edge, I've seen it on the club matches that I've been fishing and people are lashing in big pots or handfuls of bait. And is that the way to go now? I'm not so sure. Um, so, yeah, good stuff in the uh, in the Bauer stuff. So I'm going to time some interesting articles and uh, some nice little tips from Des Ship there as well. So there's a few bits and pieces that caught my eye in the press pack. Teddy Fisher Baits specialise in the manufacture of fishing ground bait and additives. We combine a 40-year-old proven fish catching recipe and the experience of our skilled team. Fishing is an adventure, and here at Teddy Fisher, we strive to make that adventure a success. Go to www.teddyfisher.co.uk to see our full range of baits. Hello and welcome to The Big Chat, the first one of Series 2. And because he was so popular... The first time round, we had to invite him back. It's only the legendary Mr. Keith Arthur. How are we, sir? <laughs> I'm all right, Dave. Thanks, mate. Well, thanks for coming back and uh, and elaborating on our previous chat. And uh, I don't want to make your head bigger than what it already is, of course. But considering we kicked off ooh, five, six months ago now, February time, um, your podcast is still way above the other the other five that I did. So how does that make you feel? Yeah, it, it's it's... You know, I've I've never been one to, and, and this might sound ridiculous, but I don't listen to anything I've ever done. I don't watch anything I've ever done um, because I'm hyper self-critical. So <laughs> I, I can't because I've never listened. I don't know what it's like. I, I mean, I've got I've got favourite broadcasters, obviously, and and I like listening to them. Um, and I don't want to try and emulate anybody or you know 
But, but anyway, I, yes, it's, it's it's very gratifying, mate. Considering I've been out of the That's sort of public domain, if you like, uh, tight lines finished nearly six years ago now. Unbelievably crazy, and um, I stopped doing Fisherman's Blues regularly in September 2014. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've sat in a few times for Nigel since then, obviously. Yeah, and um, now I can do it without leaving my office, like I'm talking to you. It's I know, like it's being great. in the same room with these modern systems. It's beautiful really interesting because you got all the analytics it might be boring for the listeners this but i get to see the analytics i see what time of the day it gets listened to and i can see and yours is consistently always at the top right the way through Mm. there's only there's only tom there's only tommy pickering that comes anywhere near you so yeah great we had to get you back yeah i'm I'm, you know i'm it sounds terrible because i don't want to say i'm not a trumpet blower um, because it makes me sound boastful saying that. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm out there and, and I talk to everybody and anybody and I'm, I'm available and, you know, if I can help anybody, I will. So, yeah, it's nice to know people still remember me. Yeah, no, for sure. And what we're going to do, because the first time round, uh, for those that didn't catch uh, episode one on series one with yourself, um, we did a sort of past, present and future feature, if you like, and we went through pretty much how your career developed from tackle industry right the way through into the broadcasting piece. But what we'll do on this one is I've done a little bit of research. I have a piece of literature in front of me, which you know fully well, and it says, Keith Arthur, presenter of Sky Sports, Sightlines and Talk Sports, Fisherman's Blues, fishing, the best excuse for loafing in the countryside. (laughs) So I've had a little scan through this book, and I've, picked out a few key things that we can elaborate on. and we'll have some anecdotes because i know you'll tell these really well and the listeners will love it um and just go from there really so anyway yeah. before we crack on though how have you been because like I say five months since we chatted things have lifted a little bit restrictions and whatnot have you been out have you been doing a bit well i can get out a little bit you know i've got a bit of a domestic issue yes um my wife's not very well uh, well, she gets now looked after on a Tuesday between 9 and 3.30. Uh-huh. So um, I can pop out for a few hours. And obviously, it's very frustrating because um, if I turn my head slightly, which I won't because you won't be able to hear me and you won't be able to see me doing it anyway, I, I can see the trees bordering the tidal Thames. So mm. come June the 16th, I can model down there uh, when the tide's right and when you know, everything's um, looking nice. I can go down there and have a little look down there even after – now, when she goes to bed, I can I can shoot down there for a couple of hours, which I did. Yeah. Um, I didn't do it last year because I couldn't, but I did did the year before. Um, I tried I tried to catch big roach down there. I've not had any success catching real big ones, no. but you do catch some nice fish while you're fishing for big roach. Like fishing for big roach on the first day of the season, twenty eighteen, mm. I had bream of eight, eleven, eight, one, and seven, fourteen. Oh, God, yeah, <laughs> that was about about two hours, just two hours, you know. It's not bad at yeah. the end of the road, is it? At the bottom of the garden, no. more or less, yeah? Brilliant. Literally, I, I can almost walk there as quick as I can drive there. But the, by the time I've got in the car and started out and opened the gate and gone down, I, mm. I, I can walk there almost that quickly. Yeah, you're all, already there. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the Thames there because that's part of what I've got in my notes here, and we'll, we'll touch upon that a little bit. But jumping back then to um, to this, this piece of literature that, as I say, I've, I've done my little bits and pieces on, and... Um, Elaborating on, you discussed how you started uh, the whole fishing game. You didn't really, like me, you didn't really have anyone in the family to sort of take you and teach you whatever. But what you did have, as I've read through this book, is a core of, of, of chums, shall we say. 
yeah. of mates that you used to go out and about with on various places. And there was one thing that didn't half make me chuckle because we talk about the Thames and I've never fished the Thames. There's, there's stretches that I've seen. I've always fancied. I've, I did a lot of work in Windsor for a long time. I always yeah. fancied a dabble at Windsor. It's a fantastic stretch of water. And, and, and as iconic as Windsor is, is of course Hampton Court. Mm. And, and you name check the Pope swim. <laughs> yeah, it's a story that you tell us. Tell us about your mates when you went down and, and, and deemed this swim the Pope swim. The first time I went to Hampton Court, we used to get these things on London Transport weekend tickets called Red Rovers. Yes. Um, they were five bob for adults and half a crown for juniors, which is 12 and a half P. And that gave you unlimited weekend travel on London Transport. And London Transport went all over the place. It's a bit like, I suppose, the old geezers pass that I've got now, like the Freedom Pass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that's even cheaper. That's not even half a crown. Um, and, and the 27, number 27 bus on Sunday went as far as Hampton Court. And it used to go from the archway, which is, is um, where Rod Stewart comes from, sort of north, north-ish London. And uh, I used to take the whole journey. It was a hell of a ride. Um, and when it didn't go to Hampton Court, there was another bus, a trolley bus, a 667, that you could get on that took Hampton Court Station. And walked down to the river. And the first time I went, you know, I was a kid, and um, it was a big river, and I couldn't float fish very far because you can see the bottom as far as you could float fish. So yeah. I chucked out a ledger with some worms I'd dug and caught 47 Pope, <laughs> Tommy Ruff, yeah. and a roach. And I was disgusted with the roach because I'd never seen these little Tommy Ruff before. And I went, you know, five, six inches long, some of them. And I, and I was intrigued by them. And, and yeah, we, we had a few, we had a few incidents happen there. Um, the, it, it's still exactly the same now. So where this swim is, it's the confluence of the river mole. The mole. Yeah. where it It's meets. where the mole flows into the Thames, just downstream of Hampton, Hampton Court Bridge, exactly opposite Hampton Court Palace. The, the bit there they call the galleries, which is the gallery windows inside the palace. That's, the galleries are on the other bank. And, um, Oh, there, there were loads of stories. I mean, we were there, a little clutch of us one day, and um, we actually saw the rain coming downstream from Molesy Lockish, just above Hampton Court Bridge. Of course, one of the record barbel, when the rec- record barbel was £14.6, one of the record barbel was caught from, from um, Molesy Weir. And there's still, there's been 16, 17-pounders caught there, huge chub caught there recently, huge bream, everything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's now mostly taken up by, by, um, Bivy dwellers, there's, there's a lot of you know long stay anglers. I can imagine, yeah. Anyway, we watched this torrential downpour coming down the river, and we left our rods at the bottom, and we went up to the top under the big trees. I think they're, I think they're conker trees. I mean, I've not been there for such a long time, mate. I really, the last time I was there was filming for Tight Lines, would have been '96 or '97. Oh wow, yeah. Um, but we did a series, I can't remember what even the series was called, but it was it was a bit like the book, really. It was places I used to go, revisited, and, and, and with the music of the time. And I think, was it there I was singing I Only Want to Be With You, the Dusty Springfield song? Well, I can't I remember. Anyway. 63, I want to say. Yeah, 63, like 64, that, that kind yeah. of time, you know. And um, in fact, I was. It, it must have been there because they went around, ran across to the other bank to film me, so I'm on my own, and I, I think I caught – I was trying to catch Dason Roach on a stick float, and it was very difficult. I think I had a couple of bream, actually, and that was about all. Anyway, I've got one of these bream, and I'm playing the cameraman's on the other bank. It's quite wide there, 60, 70 metres wide, and they're filming away, and, and I've netted this fish and put it back. And, and um, I've started singing I Only Want to Be With You. 
<laughs> and um, and you won't believe this, but I swear to you, it's true. They phased my voice into Dusty Springfield's voice on the program, and it was in tune. Well, there you go. How about that? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, this day we're all up under the under the trees, and we're watching this rain come along. And um, one of the blokes was this bloke called Michael Fag, Mickey Fag. We, we he was all right, but he lived above the dentist. In Manor Gardens in Holloway, we all had to go to get our teeth out. We blamed him every time we had a fill-in because yeah. he lived upstairs at a dentist surgery. Um, anyway, we were at the top there, and, and, and oh, it, it was probably me, but it might have been someone's. Mick, 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 you've got a bite, you've got a bite. And it's a steep little slope bank, and he ran down the bank, and it was a bit like the road runner when he runs off. Um, when, when the Wiley T. Coyote runs off a cliff chasing the roadrunner, his sort of legs were moving in midair with the river underneath him, and, and he was he was a bit too large for the air to support him. He, he ran straight into the river. That was quite funny. Did he get the fish? I've no idea. Don't doubt it. it weren't a bite. <laughs> oh, we it's, didn't have a bite. Well, we were lying. That's exactly the story that is is in the book. It's exactly oh, yeah. what I wanted you to explain as well because yeah, I can visualise this. Thunderstorm was, going on, and all these kids huddled underneath a tree. You've got to buy yeah. this. This little fat kid runs and ends up in the drink. Brilliant. Well, one of one of the problems with with the stories in that book, they're largely you should have been there stories, and and people that just read it as a piece of of prose, you know, pro- might not get the humour that I try to put into it. Writing humour is very mm. very difficult. Yeah, because it's a personal thing. And, you know, I can read some things. Um, uh, some things make me laugh every other month, like Roger's Profanosaurus in, in Viz mm. makes me laugh every single uh, every single double month. But, and yeah, so it's, it's quite difficult. But, yeah, that, that was uh, Mickey Fagg at, at Hampton Court, yeah. That's and right. The Pope. And the And that sort of it, – it, that story then feeds through and – what I was gonna gonna go through is this link to these favourite venues of yours, oh, yeah. and obviously the Thames, you know, features heavily in in the book and in our discussions and well, your life, considering you've lived by the river now what forty years or whatever. So I can tell you another story that might not be in the book. Before you do that, because this yeah. was quite funny as well, um, we went up to the Lee, um, to the Crown Fishery. We were staying overnight on the Crown Meadow. And um, one of the blokes used to come with us, Tony Jeffries. Um, he finished up in the RAF, actually. And, and, and he was usually he, – he was one of us, mm. but he was one that tended to have jokes played on him. Oh. And um, he, he, he went into his sleeping bag, took his shoes off, um, so we filled his shoes up with baked beans and launched them onto the river. <laughs> oh, shocking. Floating down the river with baked beans. Yeah, anyway. Sorry, the Thames, yes. No, there's, there's, a, there's a few things like that. There was another one where you've um... – You've you fished a match and you've you've uh, I think you was waiting in a in a cafe at a railway station to get the to get the train home or something and you'd stitch this guy up with his pie with some uh, some hemp and maggots. Oh, it was it was a club out and yeah that was Derek Marsh. Said it tasted better than his first slice. You, you mentioned Windsor. This was this was yeah. Windsor and Eaton Riverside Station and I I I think it was Derek Marsh ditching up my old mate Brian Gent who's still very much around. In fact, we had we had a, a conversation on Facebook ten minutes before I started talking to you about catching barbel on the Thames at yeah. Staines, and um and Gent has always been a bit of a, he, he he was secretary of my first proper club, the Tam- Tamasis. Um, club that went from North Un famous LIA Shield Club, and um yeah we 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 used to go by. Um, minibus, and believe it or not, we used to pay ten bob mm. 
50 yeah. pence for a bloke to drive us all to where we wanted to go on a Thames. Not each. No. Total. That was 10 bob between us. A coach was a fiver. Big coach was a fiver. Anyway, we've got with this one, we went by train. So we've gone to Waterloo, Winter and Eaton Riverside. And um, in the station buffet after the match, and had this apple pie, and, and I'm sure it was Jenny's. Oh, that was good. I'm going to have another bit of that. So, um, yeah, okay. so he went up and he went. He said, "I'm just going to Carsey." So we got the pie and on the table, nice handful of hemp and handful of maggots, and it put the lid back on it. He, oh, this is lovely. This pie, really better than the first bit. <laughs> yeah, that was gently. Anyway, he looked like a kipper. Yeah, the, oh, the yeah. Thames. So over the years. Um, obviously, it's a it's on your doorstep. It's a, it's a mm. favourite of yours. Uh, we spoke not long ago actually about. I, I told you about a stretch I wandered with work. It was the uh, old Windsor, where mm. it's absolutely fantastic for a waggler along that far bank and whatnot. But you're saying there's a lot of night fishing on there. There's a lot of big barbel, big bream. Then obviously the main river, the tidal stretches fishing as well as it's ever done. So how's the evolution of the of the Thames been over this? Because I know you're a big conscious of the pollution for sure with the, the Thames so tell us about your one of your favorite rivers well the pollution the big pollution down here was the Mogden sewage works in 2007 that wiped out hundreds and hundreds of thousands of fish and the forecourt at Kew was paved with baby flounder there were right. tiny bass died um yeah. it, it killed a lot of fish um it was the perfect storm it happened in July there'd mm-hmm. been no rain for a couple of months mm-hmm. um so all the um, the we've got combined sewage overflows d- designed by um, Mr. Bazalgette mm-hmm. in, in Victorian times, yeah. A- and they work by sort of two channels, um, a low channel and a high channel. And um, when the high channel fills up, it overflows into the low channel, which goes straight into the river rather than into the sewage works. Yeah. And that was that. that and, and then when it goes to the sewage works, it, it they store the stormwater in tanks. Well, if the if the tanks are full of crap that's waiting to be treated, the crap gets pumped into the river. And it, it's not now. It's much better now. They've rebuilt Mogden Sewage Works. cost about 50 mil, but that, that's that's done. And now we're getting the Tideway Tunnel built as well. So it'll all be, all be history in, in, in another four or five years. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it, it wiped out loads of the Thames. It came back ridiculously quickly because it's tidal. So the tide goes up and down and fish move into the empty areas. Once once the pollution, the deoxygenation has gone, once there's oxygen back in, yeah. and there was this knot of polluted water gradually getting diluted going up and down the river. One of the big problems is on, on the river is the flow. Um, up until 1992, there was a minimum statutory flow requirement down here at Teddington Lock, and it had to be, I, can't, I think it was 275 million gallons a day. It was it was a lot of water. Is that, is that measured out of the lock, is it? Yeah, yeah, there's a flow flow station there. Yeah. It had to put over the weir, had to put, had to flow over the weir every day, and that was the law. And um, when the NRA was disbanded in 92 or 94, whenever it was, and it all went under the auspices of the newly formed Environment Agency, uh, that went out the window. And in 2014, which was the last year I was able to gather information, it reached the minimum flow levels 14 days out of 365. Oh, God, yeah. Crazy. And when you look at the river, at what used to be normal flow, it now looks like it's in flood. Mm. 
you know, Richmond used to be a, a, a stick float stretch, always had enough flow to fish a stick float because of the river coming over Teddington Weir, it's shallower, it's quite narrow than the river above Teddington Weir, and you could always go down and fish a stick float. I swear to you, Dave, I could go down there now in the summer, chuck out a waggler, come home, make a cup of tea, drink it, go back down and the float won't have moved unless <laughs> yeah, the boat's gone through. I remember you doing a feature, I think it was something, remember like the old art of fishing or whatever it was, years and years ago, and it was, a, I think you did one with, with, David Hall as well on there, and you—you you was you had the old Daiwa bait apron on, emp caster, yeah, fishing it, fishing it like you know, as you as if you was in the middle of Nottingham or whatever. Do you know? Yeah, I directed a film. Well, I was technical director on a film there with Steve Gardner. Mm. Yes, um, fishing on the fishing on the steps at the top of River Lane. That rings and about he, I think he, I think yeah, I think he fished a waggler. I think he might have fished six meters to hand as well. Um, you can't. I mean, it, there's, there's, don't get me wrong. There's still loads of fish there, but we've had loads of problems as well recently. There's been seals living in the river, still mm. are living in the river, and and we had a whale here. You might have seen that on the national yeah, news a couple yeah. of weeks ago. That was, you know, you couldn't get a car down my road. Mm. You couldn't get a car anywhere near the river by the people come to look at this whale. And I said, as soon as it, as soon as it was announced, I said that'll die. Oh, don't say that. They're going to rescue. I said it'll die. Yeah. How can you rescue a thing that big? How are you going to pick it up? <laughs> Where are you going to get it? They put this float thing underneath it, started towing it upstream, if you don't mind, so a vet could examine it, and it wiggled off. Yeah. And they'll always swim into the float. This is what, you remember when we had the Great Northern Bottlenose Whale in the Thames, or yeah. the Northern Bottlenose Whale? I spent 10 hours in the Sky, Sky News studio on the Saturday explaining to people it was going to die. And, and I explained to them exactly why it was going to die and how it was going to die. And they were, oh, no, we, we've got this helicopter coming and this big barge and crane. It's going to die, mate. Even, it's going to keep swimming into the current. And as the tide changes, it's going to go the other way again. And then it's changed, it goes back again. Yeah. Even if you put it back in the sea, you can't look after itself. So that's why, that's why it's in the river. Well, the minky whale that was here couldn't, certainly. It probably wasn't even weaned. It was only a, only a baby. Anyway, yeah, the r- river, so it's changed an awful lot in, in the amount of flow, and it's evolved. You know, rivers rivers evolve. And, and if I go back to mention the days back there in, in the 60s when I, when I joined the Tamasis, um, we fished to London Angler Association size limits, and we had a club mm. match every single week. A club outing. It wasn't a match. We didn't compete with each other. We went to learn new swims for the big London Angle Association matches that were all rovers. And we went to try different swims out. And it was almost all dace in those days with the odd perch, um, the odd roach, very, very rarely a chub. And, you know, we put the flags out. If between us, and there were at least eight of us, and usually 12, went every week. Mm. So in the, I think it's 26 weeks between June and Christmas, if we had a 1,000 goers, a mm. 1,000 sizable fish between us in that 26 weeks, it was a cause of celebration. Wow. Now I can go down the tidal now on a decent day down it. Well, when, when the tidal matches in the 80s, I knew I was going to catch 125 days. <laughs> and, and, and that was the average catch. Average, it was yeah. For me, it was 125 days. If they were big enough, I'd win the match. What Sorry? Would that, what would that come in at? £20? Um, bit, yeah, sometimes. If, if they were big enough, they'd come in a bit bigger. I had 116 days and a flounder on my match for £27.7. Yeah, yeah. They were good sized dace, and, and and now there's loads of all sizes of dace down there, and all sizes of roach and perch, and you know, hybrids and bream and mm. everything. Well, I remember uh, reading a, an article where I think he's gone on Tony Curd. Uh, yeah, he's he's gone up somewhere, some your your end of the of the river, and he's absolutely smashed out 150 pound of bream in like three hours. Oh, just up the road. Yeah, yeah. 
But there was a club match one with 290 odd pound at Kingston. Good God. But the, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's there's six pound a piece. You know, mm. they're great big. big they're they're getting less now. They're, they're, there's much fewer of those huge bream. But there's another couple of year classes coming through. There's a lot more chub on the lower river now than there ever was even on the tidal. Don't seem to catch the proper ones, but you get loads up to about six or seven inches. Don't get anything much bigger than that. But obviously they're there because yeah. otherwise there wouldn't be six seven inches. You just said you about know, a goer. A, a goer yeah. to, to the listeners is a fish that conforms to the to the rule that you can put met the minimum size limit. So what, you, you know, gudgeon seven inch. Well, it depends. Gudgeon were five inches. Uh, yeah. Bleak were either four or five inches if they counted at all, but normally they wouldn't count. Um, Dace would be seven. Yeah. Roach were eight, and then that was reduced to seven when there was a shortage of roach. They discovered that an eight inch roach averaged 10 years old, believe it or not, on the Thames wow. in 1963. Um, Reading University did a, 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 a loads of samples of, of fish in their Pangbourne, Reading, all around that area. Um, perch were nine inches, bream, chub were 12, barbel was 16, tench that you never caught, I think, were 10. Um, and silver bream were 12 inches as well. And it's 12-inch silver bream is an appreciable-sized fish. You know, the, the record was only a couple of pounds or was – I, I equaled the record once, but there was another one bigger in in the waiting in the waiting list. Oh. I won down. I won down here one pound twelve, um, fishing fishing for barbel. Do you call do you call them pommies down there like we do? No, no, that, that, that was more the, the Trent thing. Pomeranians they used to call them, didn't they? Gusters yeah. is another one. No, we just we we just called them. I mean, a lot of people called them hybrids, um, but they were silver. No, cream. There was tell. yeah. My mate's pub had, had one um, caught by an old-timer um, set up in a glass case of £3.02 that came from the Thames at Pangbourne. Much bigger than the record, but all the old records were discredited in, I think, the 70s, and they were all discredited. All, all the records I remembered, like the 13.2 Bream and the 8.8 Tension, the 14.6 Barbel, they all disappeared. Um, but if, if, if you want to see the evolution of a river, one of my very favourite stretches, a stretch where I was so lucky and very successful, was Medley. Fabulous, fabulous bit of river. Yeah. Now, I didn't discover it until the mid-80s. Um, I didn't discover the fishing at Medley. Everybody fished there. There were loads of matches there. And by then, it evolved because it used to be all gudgeon, but somebody would catch a couple of chub or a bream or something to go with the gudgeon and they'd win. Yeah. Well, by the time I'd got there, there was still some gudgeon, but the chub had grown that that 76 77 year of the chubs mm. up and down the country there were lots of chubs so i used to just take a bucket of wag, bucket of maggots and two waggler rods and keep firing out maggots until i caught chub and, and mostly i did um and, and it was brilliant just fishing a waggler and once i'd caught three chub as soon as i had two on the drop i'd shallow up and just fish two and a half foot deep it's only five six foot deep anyway yeah i'd fish two and a half foot deep and, and you know cast out in the swirly water behind a boat and the float had disappeared a line would go tight and it'd be a two and a half pound <laughs> chub. It, it was you know it was just great fishing i, I didn't have any huge weights there i, I, I had a 27 nine a roach but only came fourth with that i had a couple of 30s i had a 29 odd mixed bag of, of roach skimmers dace and, and little chub um i had lots of lots of 20 pound lots of sort of 15 to 25 pound weights as well in, in fact the first 17 matches i fished there are 111 wow great record <laughs> yeah brilliant. I, I dead lucky way I, I, I just happened to draw where the fish were and i didn't i didn't fiddle about i didn't have any methods 
I set up a three treble A waggler with three number tens down, three number eights down on one rig, three number tens down on the other, yeah. and fired maggots until the float kept going under. It was easy as that. So, All you didn't want was an easterly wind when which came off Port Meadow opposite. But how how that evolved? Hmm. As the flow dropped, weed took over. Yes. And in the weed, there were perch. So chopworm and the long pole came into play. People started fishing chopworm on the long pole. One bloke won a match here with 64 pounds of perch. Yeah, and we rarely caught perch on, on Wagon Mag, maybe because we were only fishing three foot deep most of the time. But we didn't catch many perch. Suddenly there's this 64 pound of perch has been caught. And then people would be winning the matches like with 15 pound of perch yeah. and two tench. Wow. And suddenly, they, and, but the river stopped flowing because of the weed. So the whole thing changed, and then it started to become a bream river and huge, like hundred pound bags of bream of, of one matches there. It's just changed out of all recognition. But last year, last couple of years, there's been plenty of roach caught on on hemp and tares. There's signs of chub coming back, sort of pound pound and a half fish are now being caught. So maybe it'll go through another cycle. But it's over those the sort of thirty five years that I've known it, it's evolved three or four different phases of angling and i guess when you live on a waterway like that you, you you see it day in day out and you can you know you're chatting to people and you can see its moods it's really interesting i guess i once i get my head around the trent up here i'll, I'll probably have similar discussions i'll find some old timer who'll tell me about how that river's changed or that stretch or whatever it may be so no nah, well, You've only got to look. I mean, forget the bits much downstream in Nottingham where, where it's, it's just um, stocked and restocked and restocked with barbels that are barbels that come out the Trent to supply eggs and supply fry and, and eggs to um, Calverton Fish Farm. Calverton, yeah. yeah. And, and they put, I think they put half or 60% or some, some number of them back as fry, which mm. is far more than would survive naturally. So there's a lot of barbel. Once you get down below East Stoke, there's, there's loads and loads of barbel. There used to be quite a lot more upstream but they gradually phased out but uh, i mean when i first fished the trent in the 70s it was just turning from a roach to a chub river before that had been all chub you know 40 pound a roach uh, all roach rather 40 pound a roach kevin won a match four hour match with um on the stick and and you know there was so much foam on the river people used to not match sticks four feet above their float so the float would be under the foam and the match stick would be on top of the foam and when the matchstick disappeared into the foam, it was a fish. <laughs> joking. That's really No, 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 I'm genius. not joking. No, no that's, that's true, 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 true. But when I started going, it, it was mostly chub. Um, Dave Thomas had, had, had started the maggot revolution, and it was it was more maggots than casters. First match I fished on the Trent, I kept trying to catch them on casters, and all I caught on casters were gudgeon. Every time I put maggot on, I'd catch a couple of ropes, think, oh, the rotary, and I put a caster on, and not catching me. And it, it took a long time for that penny to drop. Um but yeah, it, it's that's a, a much changed river, and, and now there's loads of dace, which mm. very few dace. That that the, the national where I was second in 1980, the first five casts, I had five dace. Well, we'll get to that. We will get to that in, in a minute. But just to finish off on the Thames piece, mm -hmm. I've jumped ahead a little bit with the trend. But the, so I'm going to say a name, Twiggy. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we touched on it very, very slightly on the first one. Uh, we spoke about the evolution of a, we spoke about the evolution of a river, but the evolution of a method. So tell yeah. us about Twiggy. What a great name. And it's not the singer. No, Bill Twig, he, he was he was a strange bloke. He was the nearest thing you've ever seen to a human Toby jug. <laughs> What's it? Oh, the big nose? Yeah, it, it uh, humpty back. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and he used to go fishing in summer in a blazer and grey flannels. Lovely. And in the winter, an overcoat. And if it was colder, two overcoats. And if it was really, really cold, three overcoats tied with a bit of string around the middle. <laughs> Sounds and like all a scarecrow. His, <laughs> yeah, all his gear was in a carry. He had long hair, long wavy hair going down past his shoulders, um, glasses, a, a, a bulbous nose. Um, he was a lovely bloke, but very secretive. And and by trade, he was a plastic moulder. And he made the first block-end feeder that I'd ever seen. And, and I'll tell you how secretive he was. When I first started, when I joined the Tamasis, the clubs in those days on the Big London Angler Association matches had to provide stewards. Yes. And because I was the youngest one in the team and the newest one in the team, I had to be a steward. But I wasn't only a steward, I was also a spy. Of course Because yeah. I used to have to watch where the named anglers from the named clubs went and fished and watched how they fished these particular swims so we could log them in our records if we ever drew a match there on the LAA Shield or we were there on the Thames Championship, Thames Benevolent, whatever. And and I was on um, stewarding this um, this LAM. It must have been the Thames Benevolent because it was at Maidenhead. Thames? I'm sure it was Thames Benevolent. It was at Maidenhead. Yes. And um, the, the, the wall just behind the sounding arches, uh, there's, there's some sounding arches, a railway bridge on the Thames, and downstream of that is, is the famous wall. This is the uh, um, Brunel area, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a Brunel railway bridge, very, very famous railway bridge. Great Western, what's your, when your 125s came out, yeah. phew, they'd go over the bridge. And um, Twiggy was fishing on the wall. So um, <laughs> I, I, I sort of surreptitiously watched him from about five or six swims away. You know, pretending to be talking and doing his steward's job, and somebody would hook a fish. If, if anybody caught a big fish or fish that looked like it was dying, they used to call for the scales. You used to have to run along with the scales and weigh it and then put it back. weren't allowed to weigh in dead fish. But if someone caught one that was nearly dead, you'd weigh it for them. All the fish in those days were carried to a central weighing point as well. Yeah, yeah. So they all went in canvas buckets full of water, and we walked them down to a central point, weighed them in, and watched them all float away afterwards. That's going to say, there was some mortality, right? Lots of them did. And Twiggy has hooked a barbel. So I've well, he's hooked a big fish. And all big fish you hooked on the Thames in those days were barbel. Some of them were probably perch, some of them were probably carp that you didn't see. But you hooked a big fish, it was a barbel. So I've walked down behind Twiggy and I'm, I'm watched him. And he's put the rod down and stood on it. Rather than show me his feeder, he wouldn't mind the fishing. It was the, the rod was an it was an Apollo Ross. It was a a, um, a tubular steel um, salmon spinning rod and and lots of the best anglers used them um, for, for ledgering usually with a bite indicator well with the block end you didn't need a bite indicator you needed strong grip to stop the rod being towed into the river and 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 yeah he wouldn't net it that's what and you call he, secretive he yeah and, and and then yeah in the end i had to walk away and then he netted it and he had a few days to go with his barbel anyway me and my mate brian whose parents owned a pub in highgate village Said, yeah, Twig, fancy a day on the Thames. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. And he loved to drink, Twiggy. He loved to drink. Yeah. So um, we took him to Hurley on the Thames, which is towards Henley. Mm. And there were two pubs there. There was, I think, it was the East Arms and the Black Boy. And I think we went into the Black Boy at lunchtime and we got him absolutely <laughs> Legless. This is the secret out of him, is it? Oh, he was completely blotto. Never drove. 
And we, I think we, Brian, Brian had, he had a Lotus Cortina and then he got a Corsair GT. And I think this might have been the Corsair GT. He got it brand new, Sea Reg. So that would have been 1960, 65. Yeah. And um, we've gone back to the pub and Twiggy took all his gear in pillowcases. And one of his pillowcases had maggots in and these feeders. So we nicked one. And, and it was shaped like an egg. There was a tube through the middle with an elastic band going through it with the top that you open of the matchstick holding the elastic band in place. So he always had a box of matches with him because I used to break and you, you flipped the lid open and filled it up. It's just like the, 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 the Drenham feeder bombs. Yeah. In fact, like a, a feeder that, that I eventually developed from the, the, the original Drenham feeder link using Twiggy's principle that would have been in about 1980. Mm-hmm. I did that. So, you know, 15 years longer after Twiggy had it. And, and we got this, and we worked out a way that we could make these feeders. And another one of our pals who's long dead, so I can tell you this story. He was a joint cable joint for the London Electricity Board, and he used to nick loads of cable out the ground and sell it. And the, the core of the cable was copper, thick copper. He used to get a lot of money for that. And oh. it was coated in lead. Yeah. And he used to sell some of the lead, but he'd keep some of it for making weights with. So we had these strips of lead that Billy had. We went to a shop in um, Holloway Road, Hem- Holloway Road, Henry J. Nichols, 308 Holloway Road, where they sold fishing tackle and equipment for making model aeroplanes, including their windows. Ah. And they sold like um, three foot square sheets of perspex. So we bought this perspex, cut it to size, yeah. punched individual holes in it with a leather punch, rolled it up, stapled it with my mate Billy's carpet stapler, wrapped lead on it. And we, we used as the, we bought, um, 300 split shot boxes from, um, another tackle shop, Whaley's in Hornsey Road, 456 Hornsey Road. And, and the split shot boxes, and we, um, cut the bottom off the box, you know, the little tubs that split shot come in. Yeah. Yeah. So we cut the bottom off, stapled the rim yeah. to the, um, plastic tube mm-hmm. and they put the lid on. The bottom didn't open, the top did. And you put your maggots in, chucked out, and it was deadly. I mean, Bill, Bill himself, Billy Harris himself, it was me, Billy Allen, used to make those feeders, and, and Bill eventually got a bloke called Eddie Meadows, Billy Harris got a bloke called Eddie Meadows to make thousands, and we had a cupboard in his house, and the shells in it bowed with the weight of feeders on them. And, and um, he used to fish eight-pound bell line direct, and yeah. an eight-pound bell would make pretty good strimmer material <laughs> it's strong stiff thick horrible line yeah he used to use eight pound bill eight pound bell and a size 10 hook and he'd start with three maggots and if he got bitted out he'd go down to one well i guess the benefit of, ten. of the whole block end piece is that i mean ground weight feeders would have been used but the ground weight attra- attracts in the small stuff so i guess small fish about getting the the the, the substance in. Well, these feeders weighed like two ounces, and he'd get through, he'd get through a gallon of maggots every week, Bill. Yeah, yeah. And as the, the feeder would hit the surface, and as soon as these feeders weighed a couple of ounces, the feeder would hit the surface, and the rod tip would be going. Ah, yeah. And he'd have a dace on a size 10 hook <laughs> and one maggot. Yeah. Don't want to give him too many, he'd say. Don't want to spoil them. <laughs> and when he was – he also he used to fish for barbel on them too. 
and he'd fish a size six hook. And if he was getting daced, he'd put a single maggot on that as well. Crazy. On a six hook. Unbelievable. The fishing then was just unbelievable. But like everything else, they get used to it. They suss it out. And then it turned into a roach river by the the mid-70s. It was fishing big floats down the middle with casters, um, loose feeding, hemp and caster, fishing um, derivations from from Pat Richardson's dumpy float. Pat developed this float for fishing the the deep medway. Everything was top and bottom. There was no such thing as a waggler going back then. So these were top and bottom floats like a – imagine an Avon, but with the body at the bottom. Ah, I got it. Yeah, and it'd be fish top and bottom. Um, they you for the Thames, you wanted to take about three swan with a number four underneath that, and um, we used to fish platteal strong, um, four pound two, four point two pound platteal strong because casting those big floats takes it out of your line. Yeah, and before Fuji guides, we were using getting through three sets of rod rings a year. Platteal strong was so hard, wow. it would cut through the normal chromed high bells. Yeah. Now, good, love it. All right, then. So thinking about these special venues to you, moving on from the town, mm. let's talk about the Trent then, as we've, we've just touched upon it. And and I know mm. you've done this story to death over the years, I guess, but <laughs> it is <laughs> it is what you was famous for, I guess, at the time. Um, unlucky. But... Division One National. Try and explain to the younger listeners um, how big well, it still is, but it was then. Um, <laughs> well, <and what> happened. <laughs> it was. It, it was then. You're right. You know, twelve teams of uh, um, sorry, eighty teams of twelve, nine hundred and sixty anglers. Mm-hmm. It was a team event. You know, no individuals. Uh, the pegging was tight then. You know, you, you now get about three pegs on the Trent for every peg there used to be, and. Um, just just concentrating on my day, um, I drew peg um, G69. Was this, this for the uh, – was you fishing for the LA, LAA? Uh, this was fishing for the London Anglers Association, yeah. yeah. Um, I only fished them for one more year. I think it might have been the last year. We had a big fallout. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so I've, I've got this peg, and it, it, it's um, near Southall. It's the bottom end of Fiskerton. Um, Caythorpe, sorry, bottom end of Caythorpe. And um, – there's a couple of blokes fishing feeders on the other bank. So I set up a feeder with the hope I wouldn't have to throw it. And um, I set up a waggler and a stick float. And and this swim, I was on the end of some some whips, some phragmites, I suppose, like um, reeds sticking up, sedges sticking up. No, sedges have edges. These were reeds. Reeds around, sedges have edges. And grasses like grasses have holes. That's the, um, well, the problem. That's the way, yeah, that's the way to tell a reed from a sedge from a grass. And and so what you what you used to do was try and nick a yard. So you stood within a yard of your peg, but obviously upstream. So you got an extra truck. So I trod down some of these reeds. It was a very rocky um, bank, and I was standing on these rocks. You always never sat down to fish. Never sat down to fish. And I got my bait apron and my catapult, my keep net landing net and everything. And uh, you weren't even allowed to plumb up before the match so and i don't put any shot on my line until i've plumbed up when i'm fishing a stick float no shot goes on my line at well maybe a number 10 at the bottom or a number eight but that's the only shot that goes on because every swim is unique every bit of flow is unique and i I, I set my shot up to match the flow so stick floats on wind is never going to happen to me no same here Um, so i had a, a four before max winters stick float and um I put the plummet on, went in, and and I had the depth 
set without knowing the depth. Mm-hmm. So it was the depth I wanted. It was like four and a half, five foot. Yeah, and and the float stood on. I, I, I set my stick float with the float standing on the water, so I fished the length of the stick over depth. Yeah, so I flicked out some maggots, put my float, and there were swirls where I'd thrown these maggots. Oh, bleak! That's all I need now. Anyway, I'm, I'm shutting. I'm still fl- throwing some maggots in, shutting the float up, got it in, run it down with no bait on. Got it there. Yeah, needs another number eight. Got that on. Or number num- another number six. Got that on. Yeah, that's about right now. And I wanted. I like my. In, in those days when it flowed, I liked my float to just sink. Mm. So by keeping the line floating on the surface, you'd keep it in float. So you float, keep it afloat. So your float wanted to go under. Its natural movement was downwards. So you got absolute, the fish felt absolutely nothing. No resistance. It pulled the float yeah, down. Get it. That, that's no resistance. That's what I'm so I've, I've put um, a maggot on, single maggot. Um, an 18, 1217B, the old Olean doors. These were when the Mustad 90340s had gone bad and the Camasan B510s weren't out yet. So that we were in between hooks. I had these, these Olean door 1217Bs, which were blue barbless. And I used to sharpen the point a bit because I had a very, very long point. So I put two maggots on. Did what I always do, cast the float halfway down my peg, pulled it back towards me, threw a handful of maggots on top of it, took my finger off the bail arm, the float cocked up and kept going, struck, dace about two ounces. Swung it in, I knocked it, dropped it in again, next cast, another dace, dropped it in again, another dace, you know, five dace. Then I had a roach about four ounces. I thought, this is good. I've been told that three pound on this section is going to be a weight. Mm. Three pounds going to get you in the points. I was drink up. This is looking good. And I've got a couple more roach, and I'm about three quarters of an hour in, and I've had a chub. Mm-hmm. This was maybe a pound and a half, I suppose. Seems and I was using in the bag, in it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's me. That's me. Section points. That's me. Right. That's me. Twenty points or eight sixty points out of eighty, as it was then. And and I was using a Mitchell match where the line comes off the wrong way. So you have to strike and clonk the handle shut. Now I use the the, the old, still, well, over 30-year-old Diver 1657 DMs with yeah. a finger dab that, that you can close manually. But these, you have to clonk this shut. 12-foot Normark NMR, NMRB rod. The um, I had different whippings on every section because I, I used to build them for people. And, and you know, if a ring came off my rod, I'd just use whatever whipping was handy. And... Um, so I've got this chub. Oh, this is good. So I've upped the feed a little bit. I've got a gallon. I'm not going to take any home. So I'm chucking back, and I've started to catch chub quite steady. Yeah. And I was catching most of them about four foot from the bank, about a foot upstream of the bloke below me's keep net. <laughs> Love it. So every time I struck, it was blah, blah, blah. And he'd look round, and every time he looked round, he would when he looked back again, he would turn another five degrees downstream, so he couldn't see what I was doing. And I didn't find out until several years later that was Steve Jackson. Oh, really? Now Jacko, who won Fisher, he's, he's still, young. Yeah. He was eighteen, nineteen then, I think, because he, he told me he, he told me himself, and you know, he never, I think he had three. He, he got one chub. I think he had about three pound. So I'm catching these chub, and there's quite a crowd gathering behind you. But people wouldn't appreciate this today. But the the best pegs. And the best anglers had crowds waiting for them to arrive. Yeah. Well, I wasn't in that league, but when no, people but see you catching fish and all the rest of them, they would yeah, have so, so, behind, yeah. Yeah. So, so when people see Jimmy Randall was two pegs upstream, uh, yeah, two pegs upstream. So when you see landing nets going out and, and you get a crowd accumulated, 
And we had this bloke who used to fish the Southern All-Stars Top 40 called Ray Betts. And he had um, an affliction. And he used to cough. Like he'd be talking like, like really loud. He used to make you jump. <laughs> and 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 um, I've got this crowd behind me, and I've, I've I've got blinkers on, like I'm not seeing anything. All I'm seeing is my floating knees chubbing. Suddenly, ah, oh Jesus Christ! And it's Ray Betts, and he was a steward. He fished Pulborough, I think, and he's he's scrambled down the bank next to me. How are you doing, Keith? So I've got. Ten pound or something. I didn't have more than that. Ten pound or something. Right, catching your chap. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah, you're doing all right. I said, Oh, great. Okay, go away. I don't want you making all this coffee noises while I'm fishing. I've I've caught a couple more chub, and he's gone. And I've I've got this. These chub are all lovely fish, and I've I've got one struck, netted it, and it was the skanky looking thing. It was the one that gets caught every week. Yeah. You know, scales missing. It would have been. It would have been like. One of those scruffy kids when you were a kid that only had a Mac and holes in his socks. So I've got this chub and it hasn't, it's hardly wriggled. I've unhooked it and I've, I've, I've net the fish, put the landing net inside the keep net, unhook it, lift the landing net out of the way and drop it. So as I've lifted the landing net out of the way, I've caught the tail of the fish. It's flicked and I've dropped it. It's hit the rim, sort of teetered there for a second and gone the wrong side now i could probably have bent down and picked it up yeah but i've got a bait apron on full of bait i've got disgorges and i don't know <laughs> and, and and i've heard this oh from behind me as it's happened so i've looked around and said don't worry i'll get a no one in a minute and completely blase because you know i know i've got 20 pound in the net yeah and and we've been told that 12 pound will win the section so you know i think well i've got my points it's a team event i don't you know you don't think about winning the match anyway 60 pounds going to win the match from the weirfield 60 pounds won it the week before 50 pound won it the week before that the weirfield where they catch the big barbel now was was that's that was always going to win the match. Yeah. So um, it died in the afternoon. I really struggled for the last hour and a half. I don't think I might have caught a roach. I don't think I caught another chub. I caught a couple more chub after this one. I had a huge roach as well. I had a roach 110 um, in amongst the chub because Jimmy Randall called out. It was about after about three chub. Um, I've got this big roach, and Jimmy Randall is two pegs upstream. Lovely Jimmy Randall, sadly no longer with us. Fish for Essex County. The same Pete Burrell won the national that day. Fishing two pegs above Gary Evans, our, our, our Gary Evans from the LAA. Um, and Jimmy Randall shared it. Spawny old Keith got another lucky chub. So I've got this roach, you know how you hold them with, with your fingers behind its pectoral fins. I said, No, Jim, it's a roach. Look. And he went, Oh my God. Because it was a proper roach, proper big. Anyway, so I've pulled the net out of wading, you know, four ways, eight pound scales. 27 pounds six and a quarter i don't even look at the scales i never do I, I, why, why is the scales i'm going to cheat me yeah why is someone i'm a, I'm a nice bloke why is, why is anybody going to fiddle me so i don't even look at the scale so 27 pounds six and a quarter and i'm glowing and i'm, I'm it's the 27th of september two days before my birthday yeah. so i've got a rock an early birthday present and, and i thought wow that's brilliant anyway Back in the coach, no no cars in those days. You went to the venue by coach, you went yeah. back by coach. So I've got on the coach and all Jimmy Randall's had sixteen pound. I think he's come third on the section and and the bloke from Stoke City between us, um, which was Kevin Asher's team at that time. Kevin was eighth on the match, by the way. And, and um they're all going, Oh, well done, yeah, you could win it with that. I said, No, no, Weirfield's gonna No, this, Weirfield's fish really hard. 
we, we, you know, our runners have told us there's no fish on the Weirfield hardly. I'm, yeah, we ain't going to win it. There's going to be Gunthorpe Bridge or, you know, the road is going to throw up some fish. Stoke Bardolph will throw up some fish. So when I've got back, I've got out the coach and, and Gary Evans, who was on the Weirfield, has come towards me. He said, you've had a weight, haven't you? I said, yeah. He said, what you had? said, 27 pounds. He said, 27 what? I said, hang on a minute, I'll have a look. And I got my weight ticket out, which I've still got. I think there's a little box here. It might still be in that little box. I said, yeah, 27.64. He said, I think you've won it. He said, Burrell's had a 27 pound. He said, but I think it's 27.4. Might be 27.8. And of course it was 27.8. Yeah. So I was, I was announcing three quarters. I was another day's light. Um, but yeah, if, I mean, Beverly Adams, who was then um, a, a reporter for the Angler's Mail, collared me in the um, headquarters and said, oh, you must be gutted. I said, Bev, have a look around. There's 960 people here. 958 of them will swap. Yes, I like There's it. only one bloke that won't swap me now, and I've just put him down because I, I, I carried him in my arms for the Angling Times photo. I said, he's the only bloke. That, that don't want to be me. And as, as I'd gone up to, to get my, my medals, Kevin Eshurst was, was obviously been up to collect his. He had two as well. He won his section and, and the individual eighth medal. And I drew next to him once on an LA versus Birmingham Angler Association match on the Thames. And um, we both caught several undersized fish and had to throw them back. And as I walked past him, he says, us fish size limits today then, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there, yeah, that was that day. And the next day was the first round of our winter league. We were allowed to fish it early on the Thames because our traditional Thames, um, the free Thames league, as it was called, started the last week in September. And the AT Angling Times Winter League, as it was, it didn't start till the first week in October officially. But they gave us dispensation to start it the week before. So um, there we were at uh, Donington on the Thames. I had £3.13, I think, of mostly skimmers fishing punch bread down the middle. Very, very hard day. Yeah. And um, two young ladies stripped up opposite him when he's swimming naked. <laughs> In September, brave girl. Yeah, tw- it was a lovely day, mate. It was a really warm day. And and I'd caught these skimmers fishing the bread. So as you can imagine, my towel didn't look like I smell like much. <laughs> and I offered it to them if they wanted to dry up, but they didn't want it. Yeah, I wonder why, full of skimmers. Yeah, it was good. They came down, paddled their feet in the water. Then they sort of took their trousers off and paddled their legs in the water. Then they took a lot off and went in for a swim. What a weekend to remember. What a weekend. That's why I don't forget it. I don't know which is the best date to remember. The 29th of my birthday, the 28th of that nude women, or the 27th of national. Wow. I'm crap at dates as well, but I, I do remember those three. Yeah, it's just one of those stories. That's, and and yeah. what, what I thought, you know, we had to discuss it was because I know somebody tagged you in that. It was, was it the Angling Times picture or the Angler's Mail yeah. picture or whatever? And it, yeah. the conversation started. So it's like, right, we've got to discuss that. I know we've discussed it before, but yeah, great story. And it's good to cause I know you're not bitter. And absolutely not, you know, like you say. No, there's several things I'm not bitter about. I'm not bitter that tight, tight lines did 19 years and 11 months. <laughs> I got that theme on the, on the first chat that we had. Yeah. yeah, I'm not gutted. Yeah. No, not bitter at all. Brilliant. Bottle of wine after 20 years would have been nice, wouldn't it? Oh, the carriage cap. That's what you missed out on. Yeah. Oh, great story. Division one. Okay, brilliant. Um, So we've discussed Thames. We've got a little chat about... um, about the Trent there as well. I used to fish the Trent quite a bit, by the way. It, it wasn't like, I'm, I'm not going to say I just turned up the only match I ever fished oh, on no, the Trent and yeah. came second. Was, I fished quite a few matches. I, I was, again, the Trent was, was quite a lucky river to me. I, I, I won a few and, and had a few places and got my butt kicked a couple of times, especially by the John Allerton at Longigan, which was the only section of Thames on never, Trent I never really got on with. Didn't like Longigan. 
it was too varied. You know, I wanted to go and, and go with my stick float already made up. That's yeah. what I wanted to do. Sometimes it was a waggler, but uh, yeah, I, I used to I used to really enjoy fishing the Trent. Well, in the I, days when you could get there and back in a day without sitting for four hours in a well, traffic jam. That, that's that's the problem. Is, yeah, mm. you get on that M1 and it's uh, it's it's a right old laugh, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's talk then a little bit about um, another piece out of, out of the book that's the stuff that we've never really discussed it with you before. I've mentioned that I've seen a couple of your videos over there, but Ireland, <laughs> um, never been, always wanted to go, just never had the opportunity. Um, we discussed a little bit with Tom, certainly discussed yeah. it with Ian on, on the podcast. Obviously, he was an ambassador, wasn't he, for the Irish Tourist Board? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, loved it. Um, so you and Northern Irish Tourist Board as well, of course, because the, the, the big matches then were all on the, the ban. Mm. I missed the best times on the ban. I've never fished the ban. And and the urn around around um, Enniskillen, I mean, you know, County Fermanagh. I mean, what matches they were. The, the, the first year I went, um, I went with Pete Otterwill, um, John Larriman, Freddie Brown, Lasher. and Lenny Goodwin. Lasher, yep. We shared we, we, we shared a chalet at uh, Killy Hevelin. Yeah. And Pete Ottawa used to get the same chalet every year with a platform outside. So when we got in from the match, having caught God knows how many bream, we could go and catch some yeah, more. A couple more hours, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, the first day of the match, I drew corner grade 24. Um, I'd never been to corner grade. And Pete Ott was the, our, our guru. And, and we'd been out. On, we got there on the Sunday and we'd gone and set up some rigs and we had we used Drennan loafers and and I made some Drennan loafers and I put the plastic um, bit of a cotton bud as an antenna. Right, got so it. So I, I had five and seven gram mm. loafers, monsters to fish for roach or bream, big big floats. These weren't the the plastic loafers. These when the, before that these were balsa. I'm going back to the the, the mid. Um, the, well, the early 80s, mid-80s. So um, he said, it's really deep, that's from He said, it, you're, it's nine to hand there. You're, you're, you're short, short lining, fishing nine metres to hand. I thought, blimey. That's oh, so with pole, pole fishing, yeah. Yeah, I'd borrowed a pro carbon off someone. They were the poles of the time. Uh, they were strong. They didn't break. You could fish them to hand. You could, mm. you know, they were quite slim. You could, they were quite flexible as well. They were a bit heavy compared to modern poles, obviously, but they were strong, didn't break them. You could swing pound roach on them if you yeah. were lucky enough to catch pound roach. So bait-wise, we had, um, every day, we had a gallon of casters, a gallon of red maggots, and two biscuit tins full of breadcrumb, which was three parts three parts brown, two parts white. That was our mix. Yeah. Pete used to get the breadcrumb. He worked at a bakery. So we, we, we'd take it all with us in these vans and we'd get our, our bait from um, from Barry Nicholson, the Irish Angling Services. Yeah. So um, I've knocked up a bread tray. This, this is how we had it set up. We had, we had properly organised. So you had a rope on the bottom of your keep net so you could pull it from the bottom if you had a huge number of fish because you didn't want it to burst open at the bottom. And there were no seams on the side. So you sort of rolled it up and lifted it out like that. So you tied a rope to the bottom, put that on a bank stick. And then I had a bread tray, a maggot tray, you know, like the four-gallon maggot trays. Yeah. I had one of those full of ground bait next to my left hand. In that was my gallon bucket of maggots and the gallon bucket of casters. So there was a bread tray with those two two buckets in, and then behind that was another bread tray full of water. So if you swung a roach out, that you you missed the fish, 
and the line hit your hands and it came off. It went into the, the bread tray full of water. Ah. So you could pick it out afterwards. You could also use it to get most of the crap off your hands. Yes. So it, it was properly organised. Anyway, I've got this swim. And, and I had this rule of thumb that I'd worked out in Ireland. If you were going to catch bream, I wanted to know how many bream you needed to catch to have a good weight. And at the start, I would throw in one ball of ground bait for every bream I wanted to catch. So I didn't know. He said, you know, there might be some roach there, might be some bream. So I, I, I hesitated a bit and threw in 15 balls. Okay. And then it's a ball of cast. Yeah. With a few casters in and, and, and a few maggots. And a waste of time, loose feeding. It's like 15 foot deep. So um, I've gone and I've started to catch quite quickly. Mm. And um, cut a long story short, I've caught a few fish. I know I've not one Kevin's drawn corner grade 29, which is like banal. So he was always going to win it. So um, I've weighed in 48 kilos and 60 grams, my first ever match in Ireland. It's not bad, is it? So which is 106 pounds, yeah. 108 pounds, something like that. It's a, a decent weight anyway. So um, Fr- Freddie Brown has come down to meet me. He's driven the, driven the van to his – he was on Queen Elizabeth Road, which is in the middle of Enniskillen. He's, um, he's come down to meet me. And as he's coming down, Kevin Ashurst is walking up. So he said to me, how you done, Kev? He said, I've had 80 hour. He's got 84 pounds. He said, 84 kilo. <laughs> uh, and, and he's, oh, I'm going to win this in a minute. I was, I was, I was at fourth with this 80, with this 48 kilo, which I was very happy with because this, this was a match that there was three qualifying rounds and then a final and it was decided on weight. Yeah. So, so the next day I've drawn corner grade again. And I've drawn the other side of the bay, peg 20, which is nowhere near as good, but I fished it the same way. And luckily there were a few bream. I was next to Pete Clapperton. Ah, Pete Clapperton fished for roach and, yeah. and, you know, he said, I'm going to catch roach. And that was when he, he, he used a great quote to me. The trouble is with fishing here, Keith, if you never know if you're in heaven or hell <laughs> because you catch a roach every cast. He said, and it's like a golfer. Every shot is a hole in one. He said, is it heaven? Or after a little time, does it turn into hell? Mm. Anyway, he set up to fish for roach at seven metres to hand, and I just did the same, 10 metres to hand in the deep water. And I had another good dive, 50 kilo, 50 kilo, 380 grams. And Dickie Carr drew the peg I'd been in the previous day. Um, so we had a little match. And he kept, how many you got now, Keithy? <laughs> 24 bream, Dick. And, and, and anyway, we were about fish for fish at the end, and, and my weight was the biggest ever off that peg of uh-huh. 24. He drew 48 kilo, uh, 48 kilo and, and 48, 60, I think. And he, had, he beat it. He had 48 kilo, 360. Uh, but I had 50 kilo, 380, so I took his pound off 50. And this is all on your first trip? Yeah, never been there before. No wonder so, you the place. Yeah, so they said, well, you, you'll definitely qualify for the final. That that was the Wednesday because the Tuesday we went and fished the Sillies where Pete Burrell had had this, this weight and I'd been there and pre- after I'd had this 48 kilo, Pete Ottawa was taking me there to practice and I've had 42 pound of roach in an hour, one hour timed. I had oh, 42 oh pound my of word. Roach. That is so, the world. I don't know what yeah, but, but, saying. That's just unreal. But they were all up in, in, in sort of the wider bit just below the bridge and I drew down below the bend and it wasn't so good. I, I had I had seventy two pound odd, I think. All roach. But I, yeah, all roach. I only caught for an hour and a half. And then it in, in like the last three and a half hours of the match it was like a good day in England. Yeah. Like you'd get one every so often, but the first hour and a half was carnage. And um I was next to Bob Bob Nudd and he had I think he had fifty two pound and I I won the section. I was lucky because I was M Peg. On, on the section, which was, you know, 
mm. made a difference. Uh, he, he was on the next section, so I didn't beat him on the section. Anyway, so so that was that. So I had £72 that day. The next day, I've, I've had the 50 kilo 380. The next day, I've drawn corner grade again, 17, which is not very good at all. So I've decided to have a pleasure day. So I've fished a stick float okay. down the edge, fished for roach. I've had 27.770 a roach. 28 kilo a roach, 60 pound basically a roach. Brilliant. And then on the final, um, we they had the final on the airport section. This was the Earn Bates Festival, and they nobody had ever fished the airport before except Ian Heaps, who'd been there to to test fish it for the, I think it was Angler's World Holidays at the time. He test fished it for them, and he'd caught some fish. And I drew next to John Larriman, funny enough, and he just picked me. Mm. He, he had one more bream than me, but but he had. He was in sort of a bit deeper water and didn't have to fish quite so far out. I, I had to catapult ground bait that day and, and fish a big waggler. Mm. And um, I had 38 kilo, 6.10 of, of mostly roach fishing six rod lengths out. <laughs> and um, Ray Mumford was on the point and he won it with 55 kilo and fishing five metres a pole. And he lifted out every bream by hand wow. and netted every roach. Because the roach were too big for him to grip, but he could grip the bream, but you know, float the bream towards him. They're coming on their side, don't they? And he yeah. could pick it up by its by the, the thumb grips, by its pectorals. And at the end of the match, I said, "Use much bait, Ray?" He said, two pints of maggots." <laughs> I said, "Is that all?" He said, "I only give him one each." <laughs> Lovely stuff. That was another quote that you know I'll never forget. And and, and I was sixth on the final. I think Lashy was fifth. And yeah, that was that was Ireland then. I mean, it's a shadow of that now. I think Clearwater, um, um, what do they call them? Um, zebra mussels have had an impact mm. on it. Probably cormorant predation. I think certainly um, hammering the spawning shells in the close season hasn't helped. Mm. You know, the, the sillies where Pete Burrell caught those fish, that the quality of that sport died a death because the fish were only in that river in those numbers for spawning. Yeah. So many fish used to go into the cities, the water level would rise so they could swim above the weir. Wow. Now, the, it, it seems incredible. I know some of the festivals now, they go for a bit of a renaissance, don't they? There are some good – I mean, Bob Norton, he still loves it, doesn't he? He's over there. Oh, of course. But I, I think to the – the scale that you're talking about, there's, there's not as many anglers as there as there was, so it's hard. No, to and, and it's it it is now more like English fishing. You know, you're fishing a feed, you're fishing a pole, short line with elastic, mm. and the days of fishing nine and ten meters to hand uh, are no more. And seven gram floats, you yeah, know, they're, they're they're gone. It's you still get big weights, but now they're bream and and the fish. There'd obviously been some great spawning classes because you could count your weight by the number of bream you had. Mm. You you weighed in a kilo for every bream, basically. Yeah. And if you're on a lot of bream, the roach topped it up. So like my 50 kilo, 380, I had 49 bream. Is that encyclopedic memory of yours again? We only remember the good days, mate. I've had some right crap days that I don't remember. I'll <laughs> tell you that. We won't talk about them then. But no. I'm, I'm loving that. This, I may say it's something that I've never never had the, the pleasure to get over there but maybe one day one place that i have been and which we will finish on because this will cover my three venues that i wanted to wanted you to talk about is of course florida oh yeah i thought you were going to say scotland or something no yeah. no no we're going to go with some warmer climbs than uh than the thames florida Island, yes, mate. Sure. Oh. so first time um dire work works event i believe 
Yeah, Diver Sales Meeting, 1992, 90, we were promised if we beat our budget by 10%, percent we go somewhere really good for a sales meeting, and we did, and we went to Isla, went to Marathon Not bad, is it? in the Florida Keys. Where did the love affair start, I guess? I mean, it's great going on a works jolly and fishing for a couple of days, yeah. but then to decide, actually, this is going to be my sort of annual pilgrimage with with Roy and whatnot. How did, how did well, Roy and Jack Simpson used to go every year. Roy and Jack Simpson have been going since the 70s, yes. since before the road was actually built. When when the, you, you drove down there on the disused railway track, they took the railway lines up, obviously, but you're on the railway bridges, these very narrow bridges where if a truck was coming the other way, it was nip and tuck whether you'd get past it. Yeah. Um, you know, it was very, very different when they went. Um, but, yeah, 92 – marathon i went again in 93 missed 94 and i didn't miss another year till 2018 um and sometimes i went two or three times in a year mm-hmm. various reasons I, I, I've, I've taken a couple of parties to key west and fished uh, sue came 2008 i went with sue and, and, and a couple of, one of my mates and his wife um with different not not for the boys trip the boys trip was yeah. sacrosanct the boys trip was sort of last week in in um april first week in yeah. may yeah, it, it was um, it was just unbelievable, mate. Unbelievable. The, the fishing, even now, mm. is out of the very, very, very top draw. Yeah. Um, I mean, when we first went to Key West, a light tackle boat was three hundred dollars a day. It's now twelve hundred dollars a day. Mm. Um, but then when we first went, petrol was was fifty cents a gallon. Uh, an American gallon. Yeah, but the, the fishing, you know, when we first went, it was all. T- only took we, we used to fish one rod. Um, 20 pound class rod with um, a TLD loaded with 20 pound Andy mono, yeah. 80 pound or a 60 pound Andy leader, and mostly fish for tarpon. If we went and fish for sailfish, we used the same stuff. Yeah. And we didn't used to go and fish for snappers very much. We'd sometimes fish the bottom for grouper, but not very often. Um, it was mostly tarpon fishing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most days, if you've got two or three, you'd had a really brilliant day. The best day I ever had was 11, and I was playing oh, wow. fish virtually all day. I was going to say that he was knackered. Oh, I, I was on my own in a boat with with Jack Kelly's daughter Laurie mm-hmm. Laurie Parker, and um, we were in a tournament. And, and believe it or not, I didn't win it with eleven tarp, and the bloke who won it had twenty three. Oh my word! Um, but he had three other people on the boat helping him. Yeah. So somebody was chumming, somebody was cutting chum, someone was driving the boat. You know, if if he didn't have a if he didn't have a fish, he'd hand the rod over and someone would wind it in while he ran back with the next rod. He, he, he was, you know, he wanted to win that tournament. A bloke called David Stern, a solicitor from, um, I think it might be north of Miami, but it was that kind of way. Really nice bloke, and he, he used to fish with, with with a good pal as well. He, he used to fish with Bruce Cronin on the New Horizons, and, and we used to quite often fish next to him. And and um, and, and Bruce would always slide his boat over during the day and give me a slice of his wife's apple cake. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, there was one yeah. thing that struck me about the place as well. It was that, yeah, the fishing, you know, absolutely spot on, but there's, there's a lot to the islands than, like you say, you know, you've been with the missus, you've been with friends and their wives or whatever. You could actually make a real, you know, if you go for a fortnight, you don't have to fish every day. One, it'd cost you an absolute fortune anyway, but two. Some good beaches, mate. Smathers yeah, beaches. Beaches, nightlife, restaurants, yeah. food's fantastic. Yeah. People are really nice. And I guess it's one of those I'd recommend it to anybody, me. Um, well, Key West, it's an amazing place. It's two miles by four. Mm. And half of it is where people live. Yeah. And and, and about a quarter of it is the entertainment sector. And I mean, you've, you've got, to, well, basically it's Duval Street, isn't it? it it's, yeah. it's half of Duval Street. So you go down Truman to Duval, 
turn right and to the end you get to Front Street, Mallory Square. And in that little block is everything. You've got, you know, Sloppy Joe's, Captain Tony's, the Green Para, oh, Irish Kevin's, all the bars. You've got all the restaurants. Live you know, Kenny music everywhere, comedians everywhere. You know, just anything yeah. that you want, they, they've got it. And half of that little tiny island as well is a naval base. <laughs> it's a fair old yeah. land taken up by that as well. Somebody yeah, and, and, and the, the, um, the, the Mallory Square, they have a, a party to celebrate sunset every day. Mm. And that was started by a bloke who who um, used to sit on his balcony, have a gin and tonic at sunset, and then he got a couple of friends round, and then some more friends came. He, he was a bit of a strange bloke. Um, he, he he would dress up every time they came. He'd be in something different, like a, a ballet dancer's tutu or, nah. or whatever. He 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 was, you know. I mean, Key West is the gay capital of the United States, yeah, especially absolutely. the gay capital, gay capital of the world. And 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 um, homosexuality is embraced there. It's not sordid. It's not no. nasty. Uh, and, and there's, you know, I, I I well up every time I go to White Street because I don't know if you ever went to the gay memorial, the gay um, memorial on White Street. No. But you know, lots of people go to Key West to die from AIDS. The AIDS memorial on White Street Pier has got the name of everyone that's ever died in Key West engraved, beautifully engraved, and there's all sorts of of sayings and 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 slogans and things properly engraved there's there's no graffiti mm. it's beautifully maintained and it's a very very special place to go no matter what your sexual proclivity it's a very very special place to go and and you get this 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 feeling of of, of how uh, that particular group of people have have suffered mm. through no fault of their own yeah Basically, and and it's and, and and just up from that, there's there's another uh, another graveyard of of um, some African slaves um, that died on a boat there. Mm. And and I, I don't know if you know this, and I, I didn't find out until quite recently. But when they started, a lot of those slaves that they got there, when when they landed in Key West, they were repatriated to Africa, and that's where the country of Liberia comes from. Is that right? Yeah, Liberia, Libra. In freedom mm. and Liberia was a country set up by America to release slaves into. Well, there you go. Wow, yeah, there's a lot to it for for something that's not particularly historical, old, if you know what I mean. I mean, America's well, not old, old at all. Yeah, America's not that old. You, you could only get there by boat until about 1920. Mm. Yeah, so what's a, a the train started going there, the Flagler Railroad, then that, that got blown away in the 1937 Great Storm. Mm. And and you, that was it then. It was cut off again. You can only go as far as Key Largo. Once you get to Key Largo, that's it. There were no bridges, only the railway bridges. Yeah. Yeah. And now the others, um, I don't, I'm not too familiar. I know you you fish Isla Mirada a lot. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between the different islands? Key, Key Largo, is that, a, is that a decent venue as well? Yeah, Key Largo's, Key Largo's okay. There, there's, some, there's some good fishing up there. Uh, I've never fished much around Key Largo. You just, Got John Pennycamp Park State Park there. You've got it's closer to the Everglades by road, mm-hmm. so you can go to Flamingo and fish from there, and Everglades City, and and, and go out and redfish, snook, and, and more tarpon and sharks that territory. Yeah, Island Ride is very different because you're you're one side's the ocean, the other side's Florida Bay, whereas in Key West, one side's the ocean, the other side's Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. and Florida Bay is part of the Gulf of Mexico, but the average depth of Florida Bay is four foot. Four foot, yeah, that's why you're uh, gonna you, you know you want your permits and. Bulk. Yeah, there's deeper channels, and yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things you catch there. Lots of per- you can sight fish for virtually everything. 
What I always found, um, apparently, we didn't go on one, but I, I know you fishing, but it's those skiffs. The way yeah. that they, the, the, those captains manage those skiffs is unreal. Yeah. Yeah. Four, yeah four, 17, four. Foot, 17 foot flat bottom boat with a 350 horsepower outboard on the back. Mm. In four foot. Overtake cars going down uh, US1. Yes, but it's, it's just great. And, and Isla Marada's, I'm thinking, is there's a lot of fishing off of the road there, yeah? Oh, yeah, by the roadside. I, I tell you, if, if you've got Netflix, mm-hmm. have a look at Bloodline. I'm making a note. Bloodline. Bloodline is, is a story about the Rayburn family, which is a fictitious family, a fictitious story, all filmed in Isla Marada. Ah, okay. And most of the places are public places. They just change the names mm-hmm. um, for the purposes of the programme. So, you know, I watched that. Oh, there's the raw bar. Not the raw bar. There's the dead animal bar. Um, it's, it's the safari lounge. Everybody knows it's dead animal yeah, bar. Oh, there's Woody's. Woody's is, Woody's is a gentleman's club. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Got wood. Got Woody's. There's a Bass Pro shop there as well, Worldwide Sportsman, um, which is a very small Bass Pro shop. It's a very big shop. In fact, I've, I've got still got probably, I don't know, Several pairs of trousers, shirts, and stuff I've bought from there. Oh. The clothing is is as good as the tackle. Speaking of uh, angling attire, probably one of the funniest things I remember, which I might jog your memory a little bit when we went, was that I went to buy a shirt because I was only wearing t-shirts. <laughs> Not good when you're on a on a boat. Oh, I remember. Do you remember where I'm going? I remember. This? So I went I to the local it. shop, got myself what I thought was this fantastic, free flowing, quick drying, um, sports shirt. It was. It was. You weren't tonight. It was a ladies' one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Until somebody said the buttons are on the wrong side. I'm sure I got stitched up with that one. That was brilliant. No, brilliant. It's a, it's a, it really is a magical place. And, and as we say, had anybody recommend to, to go, the fishing's brilliant. But if you if you if you can't afford the fishing because it's as you say, it ain't cheap anymore, then you've got lots and lots of other things to do in between. Brilliant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Good. Great stuff. So we have covered an awful lot there, then, Keith. We've covered the pulp swim, which is what I wanted to discuss. Yeah. Um, we've covered... Mickey Fag jumping in. Mickey F- yeah, exactly, yeah, brilliant. Me uh, losing a national. Yeah. The national. Me not winning a match in Ireland. <laughs> yes, but having some good, good weights, that's unreal. Oh, yeah. Um, the trend, yeah, Florida, that's exactly what I wanted to cover off. Brilliant. So once again, a massive thank you for your time. Um, You're welcome, mate. Just before we wrap up, any plans for the rest of the year? What's what are you what are you going to be up to? Difficult really to make plans, isn't it? I mean, I hope to be fishing Tide Fest again, which is which sold out very quickly. Yeah, that's um, I think second Sunday in September. September Looking forward it? to that. Yeah, provided we've got no whales or <laughs> more seals or anything like that coming up the river. But fancy even a small minky whale is more than going my land, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that match fishing. Really, I can't do now. Any fluff um, chucking? Well. Given time, mate. Yeah, given time. I, I, I'd love to have a day at Rutland. I, I love Rutland and, and Grafham. I, I prefer Rutland. Lovely day at Diva Springs. That'd be, I'm looking forward to that. See my old friend Pete Cockwell, who's, mm-hmm. who sort of works there part time now, and Stuart, the manager. Lots of old friends. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm desperate to renew acquaintances with. Yeah, it's just um, you know trying to sort out the situation that I've got here uh, before I can do any of it because you know when you. you, you Gets to a stage, mate, and you know now you're a family man. Yeah. Get to a stage when there's priorities. Yeah. 100%. And look you know, at up, up until Up until I was, you know, virtually 70, my priority was getting my ass on the riverbank fishing. Yeah. 
And, and well, up, up until I was probably 16, once I got to that, my priority was, was broadcasting. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved it so much and, and never mind getting paid for it. I mean, what a joy to get paid for doing stuff like that and paid regally well What's for the it. What's um, the old saying, do a job you love, you never work a day in your life? That's right, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, tight lines wasn't a job. <laughs> no. I never told Barry Earn that. I, you know, I wanted him to keep fighting to give me more money. Yeah, that's but, right. Um, <laughs> I if they just said to me, look, Keith, you know, we've had to pay this much for the football and that much for F1, we can't afford tight lines anymore unless, you know, we don't have to pay for it. I'd have done it for nothing. I'd have given me a year for nothing. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for your time, Keith. We'll speak soon then, buddy. I look forward to it. For all your fishing needs, be sure to check out Fishing Evolution. Boasting two floors of branded displays, visit our recently expanded superstore at Hadley Road in Sleaford, where we offer a huge range of tackle from all of the leading course and cart brands, such as Nash, Fox, Corda, Drennan, Preston, Guru, Daiwa, and many, many more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we share all of the latest news and updates about products available in store. Welcome to the Tackle Shed, where for the uninitiated, this is where I look through the magazines once again or anything online that's caught my eye with a view to upcoming tackle. Um, Similarly, anything that I've used and abused, tried and tested on the bank that I think might enhance your own fishing, of course, I'll I'll spread the love as well. Uh, So straight in with the magazines, uh, this month's May edition of Match Fishing, um, A Meeting of Minds, page 80. And it's advertising the new Guru Special Edition RSW seat box. Now, I guess there's a lot. It's worth it. The reason why I mention this is because of the, this is the one um, where a shipping container or a, a transporter carrying these from Europe into the UK was either hijacked or robbed. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but a load of these went missing. Um, now, I saw a very, very dodgy one pop up on uh, on ebay whether it was one of these um <laughs> these missing ones i'm not too sure but guru of course have put in place this registration piece so they can register the real deal if you like um and try and iron out where these missing boxes have gone and it, it, it's pretty crazy really but what it does demonstrate and i think it's it's keen for for us all to think about is that tackle of course is very very valuable and these criminals know that now you know they're cutting on to it and and for an rrp of 1,499 quid. Um, Reeves aren't cheap anyway, but this is probably the most expensive they've come up with. Um, for a, a big old container of those that have gone missing, that's worth big bucks. So, you know, it's all about thinking about where you keep your tackle, um, you know, make sure that you've got insurance, etc., etc. And because these uh, these scrotes, they're onto it now, that is for sure. But the box, in general, it looks, the pie looks absolutely superb, to be quite honest. There's some nice new features on there, especially around the catches, um, the draw dividers. It looks more robust than some of the previous reeves. I've never had a reeve, but, uh, you know, I know guys that have, have had them for years and years. And, and this is a, a really nice piece of kit. I, I would never invest that sort of money on a seat box, to be quite honest. But um, I can see those that, that do and why they do do it and yeah i just thought i'd highlight that because it, it was definitely that box that i say a number of them went missing so yes uh make sure that you you keep your gear safe guys and girls um moving through match winner pole the new range from daiwa uh, i've already covered this off on a previous podcast uh pretty much before it came to market there's a lot of um 
print being spent on this range of poles. Um, they're saying it's probably the best range they've ever come up with that's below the UK made ones. Um, you get a lot bang for your buck if you like, especially with the MW5, which is the flagship model. Um, you can find that for around a grand and a half now. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot of that in the in the press. But um, in terms of tried and tested, on page 85, you've got the new fish Aqualog net bags. And I changed my luggage recently to the new fish stuff. In terms of the net bag, it's probably the best I've, ha- I've had. I've gone through, I go through net bags like mad. Um, I drove over one and burst one once. Um, I had a Preston one, which was really good, but uh, I ripped that and uh, I've had a disaster. But this one really got it fits four. Um, so what did I fish with at weekend? I had three two and a half meters. And I had one three meter in there as well because I needed four nets for the venue I was going to comfortably fit in there as well as my landing net. There's a side tray pocket as well. It's made out of tough EVA. Uh, And for the sake of, I think I paid about 40 quid for it, something like that. Really, really nice piece of kit. Um, But now what they look like, they're doing two versions, just a net bag or a net and tray bag. So there's two choices. So from a tried and tested perspective, I've done for a fair few months now. uh, And I would recommend that is for sure so that was that um moving on to a new set of reels released from colmic now uh these are called skydex s-k-y-d-e-k coming in at a sort of uh, 97 pound for a 4,000 size and 99.900 quid for um the 5,000 size there's a little competition to win the set here as well in the magazine but the reason why I mention these, they look the part, they look really smart, but I've never used Colmic gear. Um, I know it's popular. Lad, I know Matt York um, up from the other side of Lincolnshire there. He's, he's been sponsored by Comic and he raves about the stuff and I don't think it's because he's got that sponsorship. I think he genuinely believes in it. A friend of mine as well, Scott, Scott Johnson over at Saw Tackle um, in Kegworth in Leicestershire. Um, he, he stocks Colmic, his team, from the tackle shop, uh, sponsored by Colmic, Colmic Boland as well, the ground bait manufacturer. And again, big fan of the kit. So, you know, there's lots of people I'm hearing good reports off of. Um, but I've never actually tried anything. But what I would say, I mean, it's a, it's a nice review. It gets, you know, good ratings here. Uh, looks the part. So could be something to look at if you're interested in getting a, uh, what I would say is, is, is a feeder reel. That is for sure. Um, moving on then to some bargains that were, let's get my notes highlighted in the weekly press. So we've got, uh, frenzy. So there's a 10 tube hold all, uh, the old frenzy style, bit of a bargain, totalfishingtackle.com, 29.99 down from 53.99. That's a 10 tube hold all looks apart. Uh, and frenzy is an interesting one. And, and what caught my eye and, and to discuss this was, Frenzy has been off the radar for quite some time, really. There's a couple of their sponsored anglers still doing very, very well. Um, but in terms of tackle releases in the press, in the tackle shops, you don't see a lot of Frenzy anymore. I do believe they've been bought out, and I believe that they are going to go for a big, big relaunch. I know that Adam Richards uh, is, is one of those that have, have joined this new Frenzy stable, ready for a big relaunch. So it'd be really interesting to see what items of tackle uh, that they'll be releasing in the future. Another bargain that I spotted was a Matrix Power Pole. 
um, 11 meters looks the part uh, for short range fishing down the edge you know top two plus two etc again tackle.co.uk it should be 419 pound it's down to 299 so good old saving of that looks the business uh, and something that's running throughout a lot of the press as well is the relaunch of Shakespeare now Shakespeare holds so many memories for me because when I began fishing it was using a little bit of kit that my brother had squirreled away in in my dad's shed uh dad didn't fish didn't really have anybody to take me but my brother had a couple of dabbles when he was younger he just sat there in the shed and, and i sort of picked that up and took it out and the main rod was a 10 foot black and white job shakespeare rod and uh he hated me using it but he wasn't doing so i, I sort of adopted it and caught my first fish on that rod and then used it through time and, and then of course everybody had the the old blue iconic Shakespeare boxes, etc., and it was just one of those big, big names that you know synonymous for those in my era, my age, uh, as a kid growing up. Shakespeare was huge, and and it's great to say Shakespeare have been you know part of Pure Fishing, which is a, an American company for some time now. Um, and it looks like what they've done is they've taken their time to relaunch the Shakespeare Super Team brand. What happened, of course, is Shakespeare Super Team they had a, a match team. Um, which then became Cadence, uh, Bait Tech Cadence team, um, because, of course, Shakespeare weren't really releasing products that were for a match fishing audience, if you like. So it made sense that they parted waves, and, and Shakespeare had been sat there now looking like they're designing and relaunching this new super team range, and there's a lot going on there. Uh, method feeder rods have had great reviews. Um, this there's an 11, 12, 13 foot super team waggler rods that have been lost all between sort of 50 and 70 pounds. So not real budget, but that sort of middle of the range, um, affordable, if you like, as well as the kits that Shakespeare are releasing as well for new starters. And I've said this before, um, when I see these starter kits in supermarkets, your Aldi's, your Lidl's, etc., the, the buying team really, you know, ill-educated. The stuff in these kits is terrible. And what you need is a tackle manufacturer to create a range of affordable products that are usable. It's all been done before. Preston come out with some kits. Uh, Maver, the reality series, they did a few as well. But this Shakespeare set looks in the right price range. Again, 40, 50, 60 quid, depending on what you're getting. And they look the part to get people up and running, just like I did all those years ago. Um, similarly, whilst we're on the theme of getting people into fishing, I really like the look of this new range that's called Phase One uh, by Corum. And it's a nice name as well, actually. I really like that. So Phase One of your of your fishing uh, career, if you like, or your hobby. Um, and this range, once again, complete affordability with a nice little fixed spool reel at eight quid. Uh, a very usable by the look of it, 10 foot waggler rod for sort of 20 pounds. Then there's landing nets, you know, tenner. And basically what you want to do is kit yourself out uh, for sort of 50, 60 quid, give the sport a go and with kit that's usable, that's going to work. And then it's going to drive um, those anglers to, to try again and, you know, get them hooked for a lifetime of fishing. And it's so important that these tackle companies address that um, early stages of an angler's career. And that's why, you know, I always talk about improving course fishing in the press pack um, because it's aimed not just to, you know, new starters, but everyone really, but and, it, and it's developing. So let's get the anglers in, learning to fish, and then developing them with those types of magazines. Then, of course, hopefully they'll be coming to match anglers or specimen anglers, etc. And, and, and 
take it up for a lifetime. So a couple of really, really interesting um, new launches, if you like, aimed at the first time angler. Finishing then with a tried and tested piece from myself. Um, big shout out to Ian, Ian Everett. Um, we first come across Ian's floats.co.uk from episode one of series one when Keith Arthur said that he'd had some floats sent to him for the charity Get Hooked on Fishing. There's some slight seconds and now all the kids have been using these floats, catching fish, etc. So once I'd done that podcast, I, I jumped onto Ian's site and had a little look around and uh, I bought a few floats to give them a try and a couple of, um, I guess, name checks of the range. So the F1KH Shallers, they've started to come into play now with the warmer weather. Robust, well-built, highly visible, just perfect for fishing, shallow, slapping, pellet, maggot, whatever, for uh, for F1s. Brilliant. But my favourite are called the Chimpingers. So they're based loosely, I guess, they're, they're, they're very similar to a, to a chimp, um, float like the old kc floats and uh you get them in a glass stem get them in a and a wire stem and again just strong styrofoam bodies really visible tips uh, you can see the way that he puts the eye into the body as well and you know like a lot of there's tons of handmade floats out there isn't there but with this i, I think it's a general labor of love when ian's making these these floats so i've got to give a name check for those because they're fantastic but also other than that um he does what's called a zero bore hybrid elastic and i've been using the orange which is a 10 to 12 it's had a bit of an offer on there as well actually 25 percent off his hybrid so if that's still going then definitely you know get yourself involved um but that hybrid that 10 to 12 I always veered away from them. I tried the um, the Matrix one, the Slick, a couple of years ago. I just couldn't get on with it. I actually found that it stuck in my pole quite a lot. So I sort of dismissed Hybrid for quite some time. And then when Preston launched theirs uh, last year, I really got on to it, especially in the lighter ones, the 5, 7, and 9. Really liked it over the autumn and winter time. But I thought bigger ones, you know, those those stronger versions, I'm not too sure. So I, I gave Ian's a go. Uh, the 10 to 12, the orange. And for fish between a pound and five pound, so far, it's been superb. It's You strike and it's nice and soft, strong enough to set the hook, but just soft enough to draw the fish out of the swim before it then powers up. You know, the last thing you want to do is strike and that fish goes nuts and then scares the rest of the shoal, you know, and they take ages to settle back down. But with this hybrid, this, this zero bore, it seems to be, you know, just right to get the fish out. Um, so yeah, I've only used the 10 to 12 so far, but I will be ordering more. So that is for sure. So that's my tried and tested piece. And, uh, that's a little bit from the tackle shed. Okay. That's it. That is episode one of series two wrapped up a big, big thank you for listening. A big thanks to Keith Arthur for his time in terms of upcoming guests. Um, that is a big TBC. Everybody's really busy now. And of course with restrictions lifting and the river season opening soon, people are getting out on the bank more but we have got some great guests lined up we've got the likes of Dean Barlow we've got Dave Harrell and we've got former world champion Clive Branson to talk to as well so thanks for listening and tight lines